Thank you so much, Daniel. Welcome, everyone. My name is John Trapp, one of the pastors here at Christ the King. It really is a joy to have all of you joining us with, uh, here with us this morning. Uh, I do want to extend a particular welcome if this is your first time to come to Christ the King. We're so glad that you're here. Uh, I, I just want you to know that you are in a room full of people who believe that they are in need of grace. Um, and, and so if you've, if you've never been to a religious thing ever, and this is your first time, uh, just know that you're not coming to a room uh, full of people who look down on you. Um, we are all in the same boat. We all, need, uh, we all need grace. And we believe that we have found that in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so every week when we, we gather together, we open up his word and we see how there is grace for people like us who need it. And we're really glad that you're here to explore that with us and hope that you'll continue to do that for as long as you'd like. Um, we're gonna be in Psalm 6. We're going through the book of, uh, or the first 15 chapters of, of Psalm this summer. If you wanna turn to page 449 in the Black Bibles, um, that's where I'll be reading. Also, if you don't own a Bible, you are free to take the one that you um, see in front of you. That Black Bible is yours as a gift from us to you. We'd love for you to have that. You're not stealing from church, don't worry. Um, if you walk out with that. Uh, so we're gonna read from Psalm six. I'll begin in um, verse one. Actually, I'll read the heading first. To the choir master with stringed instruments according to the Shemineth, a Psalm of David. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. My soul also is greatly troubled, but you, O oh Lord, how long? Turn, O oh Lord, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. For in death there is no remembrance of you. In Sheol, who will give you praise? I am weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. My eye wastes away because of grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. Depart from me, all you workers of evil, for the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you please pray with me? Father, we do give you thanks that we now can open your word and consider all that it has to say to us. Particularly, I pray, Lord, that you would be with us, uh, with those who are grieving, uh, with those who have grieved. Lord, we ask that you would help us to see the hope that you offer um, in your word now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it may surprise you to hear that there actually are some people in the world who still watch American Idol. I am one of them, okay? Um, my wife, Chrissy, and I watched uh, most of this season, and one of the most captivating singers from this season was a young man named Iam Tongi, who um, grew up in Hawaii. As he introduces himself in his audition, he said that he'd been priced out of paradise. He's living in Seattle now. Um, but... One of the reasons that he and his family had been priced out of paradise was because of, of his father's illness and all the medical expenses involved in taking care of his father. And his father, um, right before he went to the audition, had, had just recently died four months prior. And Ian had, had 
always done music with his dad. He kind of had stopped singing in those four months. Uh, but he tells the story to, to these judges and, and then um, he introduces the song that he's going to sing, which is a song called Monsters by James Blunt. I'd never heard this song before until he sang it, but apparently James Blunt wrote this song when he discovered his dad's stage four kidney cancer diagnosis. So here you have this 18-year-old young man stand up and he sings this song. And here are some of the words he sings. And while you're sleeping, I'll try to make you proud so daddy won't you just close your eyes. Don't be afraid. It's my turn to chase the monsters away. And y'all, the judges are just weeping. Chrissy and I are on our couch just weeping because this, this song does something that music can, can do. It resonated. It resonated. Just James Blunt's story had so resonated with M that it was no longer just James Blunt's song. It was M's song. And, and it sounded different coming from him as he resonated with that song that he had heard written and sung before, he was now singing it for himself. It was resonating. Resonance is, it's a technical term in physics, but it has musical implications. Resonance is the reinforcement or prolongation of sound by reflection from a surface. Or in, in music, it's the um, synchronous vibration of a neighboring object. If you ever wanna hear what resonance sounds like, come to the trap house and when a child who shall not be named does his ear-piercing scream, the banjo and guitar on our wall literally resonate with sound. He, I, I guess he screams on pitch, I don't know, but he, he hits it and those, those musical instruments on our wall feel the resonance of his cry and they vibrate back. This is how music literally works, but it also works this way metaphorically. It's the reason that we were sitting on our couch and crying while this young, while this young man sang this lament for his father. So, so what a gift it is then that in the Psalms, we have what we believe to be the holy inspired word of God that was inspired by the Holy Spirit, written by men, and God has given us these songs so that our souls can resonate with them. These songs are meant to, to touch our lives and in a sense vibrate and bounce off of us and give us words to reflect in resonance, to express what it feels like to be human. And in the case of Psalm 6, what it means to grieve. This is so unique, by the way, to Christianity that we have a God who has given us words to use in our grief. And just like James Blunt's song could help to better express the grief of an 18-year-old Hawaiian kid, God, has, he's given us words that help us better under, understand and express our own grief to him. So this morning, two points for you. First, faithful grief, and second, faithful God. What does faithful grief look like? What is faithful? Who is the faithful God? Now look, I, I recognize that not everyone in this room would even say that they're a Christian. And 
It's not that we don't want you to one day become a Christian, but we're really glad that you are here and not a Christian. Like we're glad that you would show up and even consider what our church proclaims to be true. And, and we're happy to walk alongside you in that for as long as you, as you want. But what I want us to consider this morning is what does faithful grief look like for a Christian? So if you're not a Christian, maybe even use this as a chance to consider, is, is this something that, that sounds helpful or believable to me? But what, what does faithful grief look like for the Christian? for the one who is following God. Well, first off, what we see modeled for us is that faithful grief first speaks up. It speaks up. The Psalm begins with a crying out to God, directly using the name of God. The first word when you read this Psalm in in, in the original language in Hebrew, the first word in this song is God's name. And God's name is used over and over. Every time you see, O Lord or Lord in all caps in in your translation of the Bible that you've got in your lap there, that is, that's the name, the covenant name of God that he reveals to his people, Yahweh. So the first thing that David does here in his grief, he, he does what maybe you've heard kids do. If you've ever been in a home, a loving home, and uh, maybe you were in a loving home and you, and you fell down and scraped your knee or you have a really bad dream. What's the first thing that you do vocally? You cry out to your parent who loves you and who's going to come and do something about it. Mom, it's usually mom or dad, right? You cry out to them. That's what David's doing here. He believes that he has someone who so loves him who will hear him as he, as he calls out to him. And here's my question for you. Do you feel like you can do that with God, with the stuff that you're actually grieved about? Can you actually cry out to him in your true grief and pain? If you've grown up in the Presbyterian church, one of the hazards of that, I grew up in the Presbyterian church, one of the hazards of growing up Presbyterian is you can over-spiritualize things. And you can, you know, we love Romans 8.28 in the Presbyterian church. We love Romans 8.28 in this church. And we know that all things work to the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. That is a wonderful verse. But that is a verse that we can sometimes use as if to say, well, everything is gonna work out in the end, so I shouldn't grieve. I should, or, or you almost feel unfaithful to be sad about something because you know intellectually the Bible tells you that in the end it all works out. And so we would look at a verse like that and think, oh, well, I, I shouldn't grieve. If I'm, if I'm grieving, I'm somehow... I'm somehow indicating that I don't think that this is gonna work out to my good in the end, but what David is is modeling for us and what's modeled all throughout the Psalms is that it takes faith to grieve. It is faithful to grieve, to speak up in our grief. Being unemotional or stoic is never listed in the Bible as a sign of godly maturity. 
It's not a fruit of the spirit. Stoicism is not a fruit of the spirit. One fruit of the spirit is self-control. But that doesn't imply a lack of emotion. What it implies is a proper stewardship of our emotion. A proper stewardship of our emotion. That word steward um, comes from uh, a governmental title. A steward was somebody when the king left, he would leave his steward in charge of the kingdom. And so if we're to steward our emotions, think about what that might mean. Imagine a king goes away, leaves his steward in charge of his kingdom. The steward fails. The steward fails if he ignores the emotions of the people of the kingdom and all that they demand. The steward also fails if he does the opposite of that, the opposite of ignoring their emotions. If instead the steward, he gives over to every single emotion of the people of the kingdom and does whatever they demand so that they essentially rule over him. Both poles invite chaos, ignoring the emotion, being ruled by the emotion. The Bible says this is true also for us, we're to steward our emotions. To steward them well means that they don't rule over us and we don't ignore them. To do either is inviting chaos to the kingdom of your soul. So we need to speak up in our grief. I heard recently about a study that, um, that looked into the lives of survivors from 9-11. And this, this study looked at how were people who survived, who were in the two towers and escaped, um, escaped with their lives from the two towers that fell, how are they doing now? And what the study specifically looked at is how, what are the differences between the people who went home that day and talked to somebody about it? versus people who went home and didn't say anything about the trauma that they had experienced. They maybe went home to an empty apartment or they didn't, they didn't talk about it to their friend or roommate or spouse and they just avoided talking about it. The study revealed that years later, the people who went home and either found somebody, maybe if they lived alone, to talk to or called somebody or or went home to a friend or family member and talked about it soon after it happened, they're doing okay now. But largely the people who went home and bottled it up and never processed it are still dealing with PTSD to this day. What we see is that we are meant to be, and this is what we see demonstrated here in this, in this passage, we are meant to share our grief, to speak up about it. And I'll use this to make one plug for our, our counseling center here at Christ the King. The Barnabas Center is a wonderful resource, not just for members of our church, but for our entire community, where you can go and process your grief or process your struggle with somebody in a loving and caring relationship. The Bible is demonstrating what we, what more and more what we are discovering just to be true in general in the world, which is that we need to process our grief. Some of y'all have heard um, John Cox, who is a psychologist, speaker, and therapist um, who's come to Christ the King a number of times. And one of the things that I've heard him say that I think is so interesting is he says, grief is the way that our trauma is metabolized. 
Grief is how our heart breaks down our sorrows and digests them, processes them, moves us towards healing and wholeness. I remember Dr. Cox saying another time, kind of offhandedly, he's like, if I'm in my office and I'm, and I'm um, counseling somebody, caring for them, and maybe they've been dealing with a lot of anger for a long time or all these other emotions to avoid grief when they finally can start to grieve. I know that we're making progress. Grief is the sign that processing is happening. So not only does grief speak up, but it also, we see here in this passage, owns up to what's being experienced. Faithful griever not only speaks up, but owns up to what is being experienced. You hear how David describes his grief? Verse two, I am languishing. He's not killing it, not crushing it. I'm languishing. That that word in Hebrew means I am feeble. I'm weak. I can't do anything about this. This is overwhelming me and overpowering me and I'm not crushing it, it's crushing me. I'm languishing. This is an I can't get out of bed kind of grief. Verse six, he tells us his bed is flooded with tears. That is an intense grief and a long grief. A grief long enough to flood your bed with tears. It's physically exhausting. I'm weary with my moaning, he says in verse six. My eye wastes away because of grief. It grows weak because of all my foes, he tells us in verse seven. It's exhausting in its intensity. It's exhausting in its duration. Long after others have moved on, perhaps if you have dealt with deep, deep grief, you know this feeling. Long after everyone else has moved on, now you are still left alone with the grief. Some of us, some of us have trouble speaking up about our grief. Some of us have trouble owning up to what our grief is really like. And some of us have trouble then giving over our grief. We might speak up and speak up to it and own up to it, but get um, so in the weeds with our own grief and so self-focused that we never move on from it. But what we see demonstrated here with the faithful griever is that it's spoken up, it's owned up, and then the faithful griever looks up. He looks up for help. Dan Allender in his book, The Hidden Hope of Lament, writes this. To whom do you vocalize the most intense, often inarticulate anger? Who gets to hear that? Would you do so with someone who could fire you or cast you out of a cherished position or relationship? Not likely, because you don't trust them. You don't believe they would endure the depths of your disappointment and confusion. And so the lament is never expressed, nor the anger ever addressed for fear that consequences would occur that are more devastating than the potential joy of reconciliation. The one 
who hears your lament and far more bears your lament against them, paradoxically is someone you deeply, wildly trust. To sing a lament against God in worship reveals far, far greater trust than to sing a song about how happy we are and how much we trust him. Lament cuts through the insincerity, strips pretense, and reveals the raw nerve of trust that angrily approaches the throne of grace and then kneels in awed, robust wonder and hope. What if the raw nerve of your heart was the place where God invites you to worship him? Not to dismiss the raw nerve, but to bring it to him. To look up to him. To look up to him and to hold that grief up to him. To moan over it to weep over it. God is putting his word in our mouth if we pray Psalm 6 back to him, which is what the Psalm so often has been used throughout the history of the church as prayers. God is putting his word in our mouth saying, tell me how hard it is. I want to hear it all. This is what faithful grief looks like. Faithful grief looks like owning up, speaking up, and then giving it up to a faithful God. Second point, faithful God. Verse four, we see that David's deliverance from his grief is is not within himself. He stakes his hope on God's love. This Hebrew word hesed, which is translated steadfast love. It's a hard word for Bible translators to get their arms around. We don't really have a word for hesed in our English language. Sometimes it's translated kindness, faithfulness, mercy, goodness. Often it's translated loyalty or steadfast love. God's hesed love is his covenant love. God is a covenant-making God, which means he makes full committed promises to his people. And when he does that, I don't know if you ever thought about this, when he does that, he limits himself. God actually can limit himself. There's things that God cannot do like break a promise because he is just and holy and good. So when he makes a covenant promise to his people, he is limiting himself for their good out of his loyalty and love for them. And so David, David in his grief is not looking to his, his own resources for help. He is spent. He is feeble and languishing, but he calls out to the God of covenant hesed love. Perhaps you're sitting there though thinking, if God can do something about his grief or my grief and I'm still grieving, why should I trust him? I have a friend who had a very hard life. 
he was born to a very poor family with uh, lots of kids that made it hard to take care of them all. His dad died when he was young. His friend had a lot of strife in his family, ended up getting in, in trouble with the law. He was even wrongfully imprisoned. Can you imagine how comforting this psalm was to him? It's a psalm that he would reference. Psalm 6. Of course he would reference it. Because in it he sees that there is one who, who listens to this kind of grief. The grief of losing a family member. The shame of being wrongly accused. The language used in this psalm is not just about some surface level inconveniences. The language used in this psalm is a language of lament. It's a full body grief that goes down into our bones and into our soul. And I think that's why my friend would quote this psalm because he knew that kind of pain. Have you guessed who he is? It's Jesus. Jesus. This is why we should trust the God who can do something about our grief because he enters into it. God ultimately displays his hesed love. He ultimately answers David's plea in Psalm 6-4 by taking on flesh and becoming a man who is well acquainted with grief. God deeply resonates with our grief. He does not stay far removed from it, but becomes so near to it that it affects him too. He knew the grief of being impoverished. That's why his family could only afford the dove sacrifice when he was only eight days old. They brought the sacrifice of poor people. He knew the grief of being a refugee to Egypt when Herod was trying to kill him. He knew the grief of being a foreigner. He knew the grief of family strife when his own brothers were doubting his claims. He knew the grief of losing his father, Joseph. He knew the grief of praying the way that David describes, being weary with moaning, flooding his bed with tears. The author of Hebrews describes the prayer life of, David, of, of Jesus in this way in Hebrews 5, 7. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. He knew the grief of being abandoned by his friends when they left him at his arrest. He knew the grief of being betrayed by his friend Judas. He knew the grief of being wrongfully imprisoned when he had done nothing wrong. He knew the intensity of foreboding grief that he was dreading in the future. And it's why he quotes Psalm 6 in John chapter 12, the week that he walks into Jerusalem and he knows what's going to happen at the end of that week, he will be crucified. He quotes Psalm 6 saying, now is my soul troubled and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. You see, Jesus was the only one who could justly ask what Psalm 6-1 asks, do not discipline me in your wrath. And in fact, he does ask this. He does ask that question. In Matthew 26, Jesus goes to the Garden of Gethsemane and he prays and he asks God for the cup of wrath to pass over him. Here from Matthew 26, he says, then he said to the disciples, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. 
Going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, my father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. Jesus is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death in the garden because he knows that he is about to drink. He's about to drink the cup. There's two cups all throughout the Bible that are described. One is the cup of God's blessing and the other is the cup of God's wrath. And in the garden, he cries out to his father like a kid does when they're hurt, right? He calls out, dad, is there any other way? And the inaudible reply is no. To which Jesus submits and says, not as I will, but as you will. You know, there is something about God in gardens. There's something about God in gardens. In Genesis 3, Adam and Eve sin. You remember their reaction? First thing that they do when they sin? They see they're naked, they're ashamed, they cover up, they hide from each other, and they hide from God. That is not God's reaction. That is not God's reaction when they sin. God's reaction is that he comes walking towards them in the garden, looking for his runaways. And the first thing that he says, he says something that reveals that he is the first to ever grieve. The first grief in the history of our world did not come from a human, it came from the person of God because he cries out to his runaway children who've rebelled him, who've rebelled against him. He says, where are you? Where are you? He's the first one to grieve. Right there in the first garden, he's the most familiar with grief. And now here is his son crying out in a garden, overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, 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 the curse that Adam brought in with his disobedience. And now Jesus is going to pay for the sin of Adam and Eve and all of his people. And where do his friends, where do his friends go? They leave him. They leave him. And he goes to the cross and he takes on the curse that Adam deserved. He drinks the full cup of the wrath of God on the cross and there he cries out. But for the first time, he does not cry out and call God his father, which we see all throughout the gospels, but he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because he has lost the father. The father has forsaken him. Jesus goes to the cross. He takes on the wrath that we deserve so that every single one of his children could say Psalm 6 to him. So that we can come to the Lord in repentance and ask him not to rebuke us in anger or to pour out his wrath upon us because he has justly, fully poured out his wrath upon his own son. And then where is that son buried? 
a garden. He's taken to a garden. And there he's buried in a borrowed grave. And I want you to think about this. The place of God's first pain, that first garden, Jesus is laid in a place just like it. And it's the place where the first redemption breaks in. It's the place where the curse begins to unwind when the spirit raises Jesus from the dead. The place where God first experienced deep grief is the place where he first brings redemption. If you are grieving now, the enemies, the enemies that we have in this life, David calls them his enemies, the enemies of, maybe it's the enemy of death, the enemy of infertility or of loneliness or of depression, God will destroy them. Verse 10 tells us, all my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. And the place where the grief is most sharp, just like the garden was the place where the grief was most sharp to God, where he was brought to sorrow almost unto death, the place where the grief is most sharp, where it's most heavy, where loss is most felt, just like the garden for Jesus, that is the place where God will bring full restoration. Where he will multiply the joy. And one day, someday, the deaf will have sound, the blind will see, the orphan will have a parent, the lonely will have friends, the childless will have children, and the dead will have life. And it will happen in a moment. David says, those enemies shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment, in just a moment. We grieve now, but we do not grieve. The faithful do not grieve as those who do not have hope. It's just a moment before eternity begins. So I'll close with these words from the Apostle Paul. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Eternity waits God's people. You are invited to come to him, to cry out for help. To any who will cry out to him, In faith, he will save you and welcome you in. Not because of what you've done, but because of what Jesus has accomplished for his people. By his grace, we're saved. Amen, let's pray. Father, we pray that you would give us faithfulness until that day when we see see not dimly through a mirror, but when we see face to face. Would you be with us in our grief until that day comes? We thank you that you have demonstrated your commitment to redeeming our grief so much so that you would send your only precious son to die in our stead, to redeem our grief. We pray that you would give us faithfulness until 
the day when we see him face to face. Make us more like him. And we pray all this in his name. Amen.